Welcome, everyone. All right. All right. All right. All right. My name is Cédric Galland. I am your host for today's show. Today, we're talking Macro MTL, the inaugural show. Uh, so, as the first episode of Macro MTL, let me introduce to you what the show is, which is a simple, very loose description. Uh, it's Montreal in relation to the world, and the world in relation to Montreal. As I said, it's a loose description because it gives me quite a lot of leeway to work with. So, since it's the first episode, and uh, I mean, we're kind of celebrating the event here, uh, I'm going to please you with a very heavy uh, set of headlines here, because uh, usually international news at times, are happy, but rarely. Uh, so the headlines. The headlines for today. We're going to talk about COP26 and the involvement of some Montreal communities in COP26 and their opinions. We're going to talk about the Wet'suwet'en conflict in BC and how that relates to some places in Montreal. We're going to talk about Montreal's seemingly increasing violence and we're going to try to set that to some data i did a bit of data journalism not too much a light amount and we're going to talk about montreal snow clearing and how apparently montreal snow clearing is the best in the world according to some uh, sources so let's talk about cop 26 here so, for the people who don't know really what uh, COP26 is, uh, I'll do a brief description of it. Uh, it's an international conference run by the UN, the United Nations, uh, on the environment. And this year, uh, COP26, uh, which is the 26th COP that ever happened, well, uh, it uh, was in Glasgow, uh, in uh, Scotland. So... Basically, the COP kind of unifies or uh, unites all the geopolitical powers uh, that signed the Paris, uh, Paris Agreement back in 2015. These geopolitical powers, obviously, they're the big countries, the big guys, you know. And they meet pretty much every year, and they try to solve the problem of <laughs> climate change. Uh, with debatable success, uh, some are happy with what's happening in COP, and uh, some are absolutely not. Um, this year, the COP was from the uh, 31st of October to the 12th of November. But uh, that's for one section of COP. There's a, th that's the main section that everyone talks about, but not a lot of people know that there's another subse subsection of COP that uh, most people don't see. And uh, I interviewed a guy, he's called uh, Hugo Seguin. He's an expert in uh, environmental politics and negotiations. And he's a teacher at both University of Montréal and Sherbrooke. Uh, he's a fellow member and he's very involved. Uh, kind of crazy. When I interviewed him, he was in Brazil. He lived in his house in Brazil. That's a quick little fact right there. He explains... Uh, very well um, what the second section of COP is and uh, 
I'll show you the clip right here. There's another cop. It's the, it's, uh, the civil society cop. Uh, every conference every year will typically attract 20,000, 25,000, 30,000, sometimes 35,000 people. Um, and by far, they're not all diplomats. Uh, like, uh, in fact, a majority of them are people from civil society. And let, let's look at civil society and let's consider it very broadly, right? First Nations representatives are there. Labor union representatives are there. Uh, women, um, uh, uh, provinces, cities, um, NGOs, uh, non-governmental non organizations working on the environment, business people. He talked about um, the civil cop, the civil society cop. And as he said, there's about 30,000 people that show up at a civil cop. And that's pretty much where everyone converges. Every single association related to the environment converges and shares ideas. But they also have some kind of leeway with the decision making and the debate that's happening over the, at the geopolitical uh, level. But, you know, there's only so much they could do apart from, you know... Out, having an outcry on certain subjects or uh, put, uh, putting into account some countries that are doing things. But obviously, these countries, they're going to play by their own rule books, right? Uh, it's not so much in the grand scheme of things. And that's one of the main, uh, main talking points for people who are against COP26. And uh, I also interviewed Nicola. Uh, Chevalier, the representative at Climate Justice Montreal. Um, they uh, they have their opinion over COP26 and how, well, it's not so good. The sources you should go see are definitely these coalitions, uh, mostly marginalized and indigenous-led, because that's where you get to see the other side of what is not put out there in you know, the mainstream media. So at a certain degree, uh, the main thing, the main talking point for uh, smaller grassroots organizations is that uh, the talking points from uh, the flip side of uh, the environmental kind of climate change is that the First Nations especially don't have a voice, uh, a strong voice in what's going on. And uh, well, that's something related to Montreal because this year there was a youth delegation from the Ganawage, uh, the Ganawage uh, community uh, on the uh, south shore of Montreal. They um, they had a youth delegation uh, comprised of four uh, four people, and uh, they sent it out there to Glasgow. Um, it's the first youth delegation from Ganawage to attend COP26, and their message was to promote the relationship uh, of their culture uh, that encourages uh, uh, kind of a symbio symbiotic relationship with Mother Earth. Um, now, I am tr working actively on a, on a feature pack on the subject matter that uh, kind of talks about this, about uh, COP26, the dynamics between the smaller grassroots movements and uh, the large-scale geopolitical powers that kind of uh, don't really do much in the grand scheme of things.
but uh, I am actively trying to get an interview with the Ganawaga youth delegation, which is uh, which is going to you know add a lot more to the, the pack. This is coming, uh, I'd say probably before the next semester. But uh, that's about it for COP26. Let's uh, let's move into the Wet'suwet'en uh, conflict. Uh, so. Let's see here. The the main thing about the Wet'suwet'en conflict is the fact that it's uh, it's got the RCMP involved, and it's been a prominent conflict in uh, the indigenous community of Canada, and uh, it is in British Columbia, and uh, it's even worse now because of all that uh, all the environmental crisis that well the environmental crisis that BC is currently in. Uh, that's been very destructive and that's kind of been uh, an advantage to the RCMP because they've been they've been doing some pretty nasty raids uh, on the Wet'suwet'en uh, territory because uh, they're trying to get the coastal gas link to be built now the coastal gas link is uh, it's a pipeline that goes straight through the Wet'suwet'en territory, which is kind of northern of uh, BC. It's the northern part of BC. And they've been doing what they they should be doing, which is defending their land. Now, that has not gone un unnoticed, as uh, the RCMP has been arresting so many people, like we're talking about, like 14 per raid and you know there's footage on twitter there's a bunch of footage uh, of violent intercations and such um and two photojournalists were arrested as well so in solid solidarity uh the ganawage community also protested uh they also striked in some way um to support their fellow indigenous community who has been you know getting raided and that's awful so there's a message here from Gaia Dineda she's a, an indigenous activist and she had this to say invades our land captures our people and places them in POW camps reservations is an act of war the attack on the Wet'suwet'en is the continuation of colonial and corporate governments genocide against Ogwehunwe people, lands, and resources. The courts of Canada do not have any jurisdiction over us. We are holding space in Ganawage in solidarity with our Ogwehunwe family at Wet'suwet'en. Now this, this was taken from a, um, an interview that she did for the press. Uh, it was with Montreal Gazette. And um, that kind of justified what the Ganawagi community did. Um, it was a railway in Saint-Lambert, if I remember correctly. They, 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 they blocked it in solidarity. Uh, but this conflict, the Wet'suwet'en conflict, uh, garnered quite a lot of international attention. Some not-so-good international attention, let's say. Uh, obviously, there's the flashiest example being uh, Leonardo DiCaprio doing a tweet on it, which is, I mean, it could mean a various amount of things. Uh, is it actually active support of this Wet'suwet'en community? Who knows? But 
there has been uh, an open letter by the Amnesty International, and that letter, I have it right here with me, and there's a few things from it that we should kind of read through and uh, s the weight of it, the weight of the letter. Let's, uh, let, let's work with that. And uh, the letter is addressed to Justin Trudeau, the uh, premier of British Columbia, John Horgan, the commissioner for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, Brenda Lucky. So the letter is uh, presents some pretty hefty accusations towards the uh, the powers that be. Uh, let's read some of it here. So. Community members reported that officers set up a checkpoint at the 28-kilometer mark of Maurice Forest Service Road and were preventing food and medicine from passing through to those in need and stopping community members from traveling through the territory. This escalation is in contradiction with the recommendations issued by the UN Committee for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination in December 2019, which call on Canada to withdraw police and security forces from the area. An increased police presence raised serious concerns for the safety of the Wet'suwet'en land defenders and their supporters, considering previous arrests and reports that officers deployed in 2019 were approved to use lethal oversight during the execution of the injunction order. So right there, there's a lot of detail here, and in a short amount of words, uh, they kind of lay it out thick and directly. And after that, they have some, uh, they urge uh, the federal and provincial government and the RCMP to do uh, a few things, which uh, one of them is to comply without delay with the UN community on the elimination of racial discrimination's 2019 recommendation that Canada withdraw security and policing services from Wissowitz and traditional lands. They also want to guarantee, guarantee that RCMP and security forces do not use lethal, lethal force against Wissowitz and land defenders. They also want to allow uh, critical foods and medicines to reach the communities and the free movement of people within the territory. And they want to work with the Wet'suwet'en heredita hereditary chief, land defenders and supporters to allow the passage of foods and medicines to stranded ghost coastal link gas link workers until such time as they leave or can be evacuated from the work lodges. So the, 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 main, the main point here is the fact that the... Uh, the Wet'suwet'en land defenders uh, in some way blocked uh, some of the supplies to go to the coastal, coastal gasling workers. And here Amnesty International wants to, you know, at the minimum, they, they want to see some reconciliation or some, some type of uh, compromise made from both parties. But also they want all violence to be removed from the situation, which is completely fair. So the international attention on this conflict is uh, obviously uh, not so good for uh, Justin Trudeau, for everyone involved, really. Um, and I would, I mean, personally, I would love to see some of some of these uh, urgencies proposed by Amnesty International to be enacted here. But obviously, we'll see where that goes. Now, let's talk a bit about gun violence in Montreal here. So... Obviously, if you've uh, if you've seen the news uh, in the past, let's say month, month and a half, or actually year, 
gun violence, violence in general has been a hot topic for Montreal overall. And I've seen quite a lot of people, uh, journalists especially, say that uh, there is a tendency for the media in Montreal to uh, exaggerate the, um, the urgency of uh, gun violence in a city like Montreal. So I decided to kind of get some statistics together, work those out really, and, uh, you know, a bit of data journalism, one might say. Uh, but it's nothing too crazy, nor comprehensive. Uh, I am overlooking a ton of uh, stakes here. But let's just look at the data that's been that's out right now. So as of now, uh, Montreal is at the 32nd homicide this year. Um, if we compare that to the previous years, so last year it was uh, 42. Uh, the year before that, it was 45. And the year before, before that, 2018, it was 47. Since the year is not over yet, but close to being over, it seems about on par or even under par from what Montreal is used to see. Um, usually for the homicide rate, uh, we're going to talk about homicide rate specifically here. Uh, it's a statistics that is shown, uh, it's, it's per 100,000 people. And the statistics for Montreal is 0.97 homicide per 100,000 people. So, obviously, as uh, any good data journalism, I'm going to do some comparison here. I'm going to compare first to other Canadian cities. So, Toronto, uh, the homicide rate is 1.62 per 100,000 people. And Edmonton is uh, 3.19 per 100,000 people. So, in comparison to larger urban centers in uh, Canada, Montreal is not so bad. Now, let's compare that to some other cities around the world that have, let's say, a similar temperament than Montreal. Uh, first of all, un London, England. Uh, in 2018, London, England uh, registered 1.5 homicides per 100,000 people. So yet again, it's very much on par with Canadian cities and over uh, Montreal by quite a bit. Now, Sydney, Australia, though, is not so bad with 0 0.9 per 100,000. Uh, that was registered in 2019. Uh, but now let's look at some American cities. Now, <laughs> American cities, they are like when I looked at the statistics, the world statistics, American cities were outliers here. It was pretty drastic. Um, first of all, let's talk, let's start with the big dog, New York, which surprisingly is, uh, 3.5 homicides per 100,000 people in 2018. Not so bad, right? Uh, let's look at Los Angeles, L Los Angeles, which is 6.4 per 100,000 people in 2018. Yet again, not so bad yet again, uh, Los Angeles, it's a huge city, uh, 6.4 is not so bad. But now, Chicago. Chicago has 20.7 per 100,000 people uh, in 2018. And the, the, the one, the main one, uh, is Detroit with 38.9 per 100,000 people. So, 
this is not to gain any conclusion from what's happening in Montreal. Uh, homicides and gun violence should realistically be at zero here. But it's, uh, it's fair to assume that Montreal is not in the worst cities out there. And uh, it was only a small exercise that I did here to kind of provide a bit of perspective on a situation that might uh, bring people to have a certain tunnel vision. And uh, we don't want that, really. We, we don't want tunnel vision in this case. Um, now, let's finish off with something not so, uh, not so uh, hard and heavy. Um, let's talk about snow clearing here. Uh, snow clearing, obviously, uh, it's, uh, it's something that we're all... Uh, used to used to see used to 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 to, to handle it's uh, something that's very common to us all montrealers and we've sort of gotten indifferent about it but montreal is considered the undisputed champion of snow clearing uh that's a it's a pretty crazy statement right there but at a certain degree it does it does make sense right because we have some insane snowfalls uh, this year. It started pretty early uh, compared to last year, at least, uh, with some uh, with a snowstorm that was uh, last Sunday, actually, a week ago. The the first snowstorm, and you know, I do have to say that uh, on that night I was driving on the Highway 15. Um, and I was quite impressed by the snow clearers that were going a hundred kilometers per hour barreling down the highway. I thought that was a pretty nifty and impressive piece of logistical kind of organization right there. And it kind of led me to do to talk about this. Uh, in the U.S., uh, we know that uh, some cities are kind of uh, longing for our organizational skills in that matter. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty insane. And obviously, uh, namely, I think there's been an event. I don't remember when, uh, but, uh, in New York, they called for our, our help cause they had a, an early snowstorm and, uh, they were, I, they had to close everything down. And then we came down like a, a bit of a bunch of saviors here. Um, and I do have to say that's pretty flattering for Montreal. Um, I'd like to see some comparison between other northern cities, maybe Stockholm, Oslo, and the and the uh, Scandinavian countries, and maybe Russia too. Uh, let's see. Let, let's see how a a a, uh, <laughs> a communist uh, snow clearing system works. That'd be an interesting kind of comparison to make between Montreal and all those cities. But in terms of NA North America, obviously Montreal is. Uh, close to being undisputed. There's probably other cities in Canada that have some pretty insane systems, but Montreal kind of stole the stole the show, stole the limelight here. And uh, yeah, so I think that's about it for now. The first episode of Macro MTL uh, it is now over. Uh, it this has been Cédric Galland, your host. And uh, I guess we'll see you in two weeks with another episode of Macro MTL and another series of news. Let's hope for a bit of a, uh, a happier set of news. Um, this show is going to be put on CGLO Spotify. So if you missed it, well, I mean, if you're here, you haven't missed it. But 
if someone's missed it, don't worry, it's going to be on there eventually. And thank you for listening. And I'll see you later.